Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to Pink Shade with Aaron Martin, the podcast where we talk about reality TV and we get a little bit culty. Well, I am going to get a lot bit culty today because I have Michelle Likowski from the Jenny McCarthy Show and the great, fantastic, wonderful podcast, Never Tell Your Stories, which she just started recently. I have her with me to talk about Jonestown, an American tragedy. It was a short documentary or is a short Dateline episode, actually, that was on in mid-July, and I've linked it up to the Facebook page, but if you search Jonestown, an American Tragedy, you can find it linked up pretty much everywhere, and you can watch it from any device. You don't need to go to your TV to find it on demand. Dateline did a really, really interesting job of covering the Jonestown tragedy in a new and interesting way. Now, many of you might have known before the story that went on with the congressmen and the reporters who went down to Jonestown and actually, you know, pretty much came under attack, let's say. We're going to get into more detail as we cover it together in my conversation with Michelle, but they came under attack and um, several of them were actually murdered and it sparked then what Jim Jones would call the mass suicide, which I would term a mass murder of his followers, resulting in over 900 deaths, 300 of whom were tragically children. This happened in 1978, and incidentally, this happened, I want to say, six to eight months after my own parents left our cult, the Kobu, the Church of Bible Understanding. And uh, if you listen to my first few podcasts, you hear my story about that, how my parents joined this group. Of course, they didn't know it was a cult. They didn't call it a cult. They just thought it was a religious group, and they lived communally, much like Jonestown, although they didn't live in another country, and thank God nothing tragic like that ever occurred, and, and never occurred to the to its people after they left either. However, the leader was equally as nuts as they all are, as all cult leaders are, equally as narcissistic and equally as manipulative, and convinced people to join under really similar tenets as Jim Jones did. Jim Jones really convinced people to join because he said he was starting a social movement and that everybody else was touting lies and, you know, the government was out to get them and only he had the truth. Well, that's what cult leaders do. And Stuart Trail, who was and is, he's still alive in Florida, who is the leader of the Kobu, said many of the same things. We know that Keith Ranieri says the same things. We know that David Miscavige says the same things. They all claim to have the one and only path to truth, and that's the scariest thing about cult leaders. But anyway, I think it's interesting to watch this Dateline special because if you have followed the tragedy on the many, many, many documentaries and specials that have come out over the years, then you know a lot of the details, but this really shows it from a different lens. It shows it from NBC's 
reporting lens and it shows you some footage, or at least it showed me some footage that I had never seen before from cameras that had been tossed to the ground and filmed the last moments of what was happening to this crew. So we are going to get into that very shortly. Before that, let's talk about some lighter stuff. And by that, I mean reality television. Yes, we have to discuss a little bit about 90 Day Fiancé before the 90 days. All right, so first and foremost, let's talk about Paul and Karini. Are you guys feeling like this is getting a little bit stale? I mean, I loved Paul and Karini season one, and this is only season two. It's not like we've seen these folks forever and ever, but I'm feeling like their story is getting a little bit stale already. How can that possibly be? You know, the pregnancy test, the STD worries, it's sort of like a do-over of last year. I mean, we've already seen this scene. Karini just took the pregnancy test again. Paul is still paranoid. It felt slightly staged to me. I don't know. What do you guys think about this? I am hoping that we get some fresh material. Uh, If you know the spoilers out there, cover your ears if you don't for 15 seconds. But if you know the spoilers, Karini is rumored to be pregnant. They are also rumored to be married. So I guess we're going to see those things coming up. Okay, you can listen again if you you covered your ears for the spoilers. But uh, I don't know. Something is not sitting well with me with these two. So I'm hoping they start bringing it. I want Paul to bring a new flavor of crazy. I mean, he brought us the rainbow of crazy last year. At least we have the other new cast members to bring us all new crazy. All right, let's go to the original cast members from last year times two, Jesse and Darcy. They are also back with the same old shit, different year. Darcy, oh girl, I was looking forward to interviewing you. Uh, You canceled on me. Uh, You're free to reschedule. I'm here. I'm listening. But I have to say, it is really sad and pathetic watching her and Jesse in their extreme deep dysfunction. Jesse is actually starting to sound like the wiser person in this relationship. And that really disturbs me because A, he is definitely going to be a serial killer at some point, And B, he's only 24 years old. And Darcy is 43, which is my age. Not that I am mature because I am watching and talking about 90 Day Fiance. And I'm obsessed with every reality show out there. But still, I don't think some crazy ass 24 year old is in love with me. Nor that he should be the stepfather to my almost teenage children. So it is just really irking me that she's making me kind of root for Jesse. Like, this is not right. It's like a glitch in the matrix. I don't know what's up with that. All right, let's get on to the new people, Ricky and Melissa. You guys, was it just me who was sucked in by this catfish storyline? I thought I had, I was at the point in my reality TV viewership where I could see through all fake storylines. You know, I could see the writing on the wall coming I truly thought that Melissa was not real. Even though people were out there saying, well, she's probably real. And, you know, someone is going to show up because TLC wouldn't, you know, have him fly down there just to get catfished. So I was thinking, all right, but I thought a completely 100% different version of her would show up. I mean, someone who actually resembled the photos showed up. Sure, she had braces. Sure, she looked like she was possibly 17, 18 years old. But it was her. I mean, it was the same woman in the pictures. Here's the theory floating around and the one that I sort of am buying into, even though there are many reasons I shouldn't. She is a front for a ring of people who are collecting paychecks from these losery guys who have no self-esteem, 
who are completely misguided and just trolling for women with big boobs online. She is the one who shows up at these appointments when they fly to her country and she meets them one time and then she never sees them again. And maybe they never get any more money out of them or maybe she comes back, again, this ring of people comes back with her face as the profile face and apologizes later when the dude flies back to his home country and then asks for more money. And then maybe the dude flies down again. I don't know. Now, I was talking about this theory on the Michelle Collins Sirius XM radio show just today. And if you didn't hear that and you have Sirius XM, you can listen on demand to Monday morning's recap. We did it at about 9.30. It's, a, it's like, like the hour and a half mark, I think. It was 9.30 a.m. EST. Michelle said, you know, I don't think she would do that because she wouldn't blow up her game on camera if that's the game she was playing. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's that really is true in a sense. But, oh my God, how many of these people on TLC have we seen just blow up their games in general? Like George? I mean, Homeboy had no money and he was posing as a millionaire for like a year. He also definitely has that kid. That kid who he's claiming he doesn't have, that's definitely his. I'm convinced of it. He also was just fully dealing drugs <laughs> in illegal states during his tenure. There are also so many other examples I can think about of people just really shooting themselves in the foot. I mean, America, we are not sending our best nor our brightest abroad in this 90-day franchise. You know, regardless, I think we should enjoy the four minutes of Melissa that we saw because I highly doubt we're ever going to see her again. Except in flashbacks to that one scene that she filmed with Ricky. I feel like Ricky is just going to be walking around Columbia in his hoodie and being sad for the remainder of the series. And I feel like that's why we haven't met the seventh couple yet. Because they're going to fill in the shorter storyline that Ricky and the absentee Melissa will leave a void for. Uh, That's my prediction. I'm sticking to it until I'm proven wrong. Now, you know what? TLC has proven me wrong time and again, so I will happily be proven wrong on this one too. Maybe Melissa is truly in love with Ricky and she accepted his wilted roses and saw him in the flesh, listened to his tired, sad jokes and knows that he is the one for her. I don't know. We shall see. All right. Speaking of sad and pathetic. Oh my God, you guys, Tariq or Tariq. People are pronouncing it both ways. I'm going to say Tariq because I feel like that's what we heard on the show. Correct me if I'm wrong. Tariq and Hazel in the Philippines. First of all, saddest woman ever on this series and giving me vibes of Mark and Nikki circa what, four seasons ago. Do you guys remember this? You 90 day fans from the beginning, Mark and Nikki are one of the creepiest scenarios that has ever touched this universe, the 90 day universe. And Hazel and Tariq are giving me those vibes, different flavor, But it really seems like a woman who is just desperate to get out and will be with any creep that she could find. I don't think Tariq is nearly as creepy as total murderer Mark. Okay, so I'm truly convinced that Mark and Nikki are some kind of Dateline special waiting to happen if it hasn't happened already and Dateline just hasn't caught up with the crime yet. I don't think Tariq is (laughs) Mark in the sense that he's not, you know, like looking at her like uh, he's going to possibly tie her up and leave her in his basement and make her his slave. But he does have that really predatory vibe around him. People are really sympathizing with him. He seems like a good dad, kind of. Not really, though, because he left his daughter, 
who is on the autism spectrum back home, his small daughter, to go and search for love in Asia. And he also fetishizes Asian women by saying, I love Asian women. And he has this, quote, ex-girlfriend in Thailand, a <coughs> hooker, who he is not in contact with anymore, according to him, but who he really likes to talk about as kind of his gateway drug into going after Asian women. He creeps me out. I don't care how much of a sad sack he is. He totally gives me creeptastic vibes way more than Ricky. I know that people are pissed off with Ricky because they think like he is just going after, you know, the hot ass online. That is definitely Tariq too. And oh my God. At that pillow barrier that Hazel was building between them, I was like, girl, you need more than a pillow barrier with this guy. Him laying in his hospital scrubs, holding her hand and giving her that look kind of like you owe me and basically telling her like, you need to at least give me a kiss. I mean, I don't know. I was like, I was having all kinds of me too vibes go on during that. Now we know that Hazel has a backstory. She already has a child. In fact, it's not like she is a virgin. That doesn't matter. That does not matter. She doesn't owe Tariq jack squat. Sure, he took his five crappy flights that he found on kayak.com across the world to get there. Sure, he is allegedly putting his heart on the line for love. More like he's searching for a woman who will obey him and satisfy his sexual needs and his every whim. But Hazel doesn't need to bed him upon sight in like that accidental one bedroom condo. Shut the fuck up, Tariq. Shut up with your accidental condo. Whatever, dude. I don't know. Why is he bothering me this much? Because I don't think he's, I don't think he's actually that bothersome. Something is just striking a chord in me. It's, it's like a gut feeling I have with him. I have a feeling we're going to see more of his creepiness factor come out. You know how when you just get a sense with some guys, even through your TV, that something is way off? And I guess we could say that about every single member of this cast. There's something even more off with him. Just way more off. Okay. Hazel also, I have to, before I move on, she strikes me as really sad and also kind of tough, I'm hoping. You know how she's like laying down the law with him right away. She is making no bones about the fact that she just wants him so that she can get the fuck out of the Philippines. And she wants a guy with a house, wants a guy with some kind of income, and Tariq will do, even though he's, quote, chubby. He's not chubby. Hazel, who it looks like she needs a hamburger. But she also looks really desperately sad. And it's just a reminder of this, you know, these stories have such elements of sadness in them because there are these people who are really desperately trying to escape poverty and she obviously falls into this category. Now, at least David didn't show up on her doorstep. So, you know, maybe Tariq's an improvement, although again, he's just giving me creepy vibes. Let me know what you think. Okay, we need to talk about John and Rachel. John and Rachel, UK, New Mexico connection with baby Lucy in tow. We saw this week that Lucy is in the house and John is already losing his mind. Rachel is forcing him to sort of be Insta father, like feed her, burp her, get the crib together. Like she is really all about doing this instantaneously. I wonder if the producers are sort of pushing her to do this so that it will cause more inflated immediate drama. There's something not right with John. He doesn't give me the creepy, pervy vibe that Tariq does. However, he gives me 
the really angry manslaughtery vibe that his record indicates probably, right? He has this criminal record. We don't know how many asses he beat down. We don't know who he almost killed, maybe, because I'm not sure about any of this. But his friends were basically calling him a criminal. And I don't think if he just got in some random bar fight once in college, they would be calling him a criminal and giving him so much shit. Something is going on. He has the look in his eyes like he's gotten a head injury. He has gotten some kind, he's gotten knocked around one too many times playing American football or rugby or whatever the hell he does, or just taking those selfies because those look kind of physically demanding as well. John, you need to stop with the selfies. But he is not right. Like, dude ain't right. Something has happened. He doesn't blink. He's giving me James from Love After Lockup vibes, but with a criminal past. I need him to back away from the baby. I think he has good intentions with Rachel. I don't think he's trying to get anything, you know, underhanded out of this situation. I think he does have good intentions, but I think he ain't right. And we know that there are spoilers out online. Some people are saying they're already married. Some people are saying they knew each other before this. There is a woman who is telling the world through social media that she is the mother of Lucy's baby daddy. That doesn't make any sense. Lucy doesn't have a baby. She is the mother. She's the grandmother of Lucy. She's Lucy's grandmother. Wow. That was, <laughs> that was really hard for me to figure out. She's Lucy's grandmother, essentially, paternal grandmother. So she is putting out there that her son wanted to be in Lucy's life. This is Rachel's ex-boyfriend, I guess. But Rachel just ditched him and ran off with Lucy and went to the UK and she is such a raging bitch and she cut him off and blah, blah, blah. And who knows if there's any truth to any of this. And there's other rumors out there that John is the, is the baby daddy. So what the hell is going on with them? I don't know. I do know that John needs his head literally examined and I, I don't want to see that baby in his care alone. I like that the mother is in the house, John's mother. I like that Rachel is there too, that he, she's not leaving her baby in the care of a strange family and just romping around town. I mean, we'll see how this goes. I, I, I can't handle this little baby being in danger, so I hope that everything's on the up and up. Last couple we need to talk about is Angela and Michael. These are my absolute favorites. I heart them. I love them. Here's what I think. I think Angela and Michael are a total disaster. I think they're not going to work out. And I think they are the best TV going on right now. They are everything we need on this show. I mean, this May-December relationship is only a small part of what makes them so delightful. Michael has a really good personality and so does Angela. I mean, I'm just going to say it. I like them both and I like them both because they're totally delusional and crazy and, and batshit. I mean, he's obviously in this quote relationship. Again, I, I can't even believe I call these relationships. He's in this deal to get something. I mean, he has this shrine of the president in his house. He is wearing these MAGA hats and t-shirts. He's got the Trump bobblehead. I mean, he's such a caricature of someone who's just trying to get a meal ticket to the U.S. And he doesn't care if he has to sleep with Angela three times in one night to do it. She is 
grabbing his dick in the hallway. She is grabbing his junk before she even, you know, kisses him three times. He's wiping off her kisses with his handkerchief, but he's smiling through it. Like he's the most good natured, uh, com- you know, person who's complicit in one of these bad deals ever. Like he's not doing the as in, well, you, I, you can't touch me because it's not appropriate. He's just like, fine, I'll sleep with you. Like whatever. Like I tried to fight her off the mattress, but I'll just do it. It's cracking my ass up. I mean, there was Mohammed and Danielle, and then there was Nicole and Azin, and now this is like the third couple that is the that are the breakout stars, Angela and Michael, and they are so much more likable, and they're so they're so stupidly paired. Him telling her make it younger about her face, like make it younger, make it younger, to put her makeup on. I died. I mean, that is like the phrase that could be like the tagline of all 90 day fiance ever. They should just put that on the, the bottom of their screeners, make it younger. That is what most of the guys who get an Angela shipped to them from the U S are thinking. Angela also doesn't have a small child in tow. She's not, she doesn't have a baby with her. She doesn't have small children that she left back home. So I like that she doesn't have that that, uh, you know, universe of small children around her who you're scared for. So I can just freely laugh at them. He also doesn't have any children. It just makes me, makes me happy to see a dysfunctional couple who's batshit crazy, who's a little bit funny, who's, you know, got sweat stains around the armpits, just cracking my ass up. I could watch them all day. I, I hope that they get majorly, majorly featured each week. I don't ever want to have a week where they're not featured. I'm thinking that they are going to be featured heavily based on how much we've seen of them so far. I know that Angela is no stranger to reality TV. She knows how to play it up for the cameras. And you know what? I'm fine with that. I don't hate her for that. All right. Sharp Entertainment, TLC, you've done it again. This is an amazing season two of Before the 90 Days. Let's go ahead and get into more serious stuff now. I'm going to be talking to Michelle Likowski about the Dateline documentary, Jonestown, an American Tragedy. Here we go. Well, hey, Michelle, we're here to talk about Jonestown. Are you ready? Um, I guess. <laughs> I don't have any Kool-Aid handy. Oh, my God. So we just both watched this Dateline special that I introduced, and it was on mid-July. Jonestown is not a new story. This was a new special. It covered a different angle, which we're going to get into. We thought it was worth talking about because it covered this. To me, it was a new angle, things I'd never Mm -hmm. seen before. But what did you you know about Jonestown before you watched this? Were you in deep with this cult in knowledge-wise? I, I knew a lot. Like, um, I recently heard a pretty amazing podcast that really went in deep to, to, you know, his background and why he's the way he is and yada, yada, yada. So I knew a bunch about hit that and that, you know, socially at the time, like there was quite this, I mean, like it's gotten any better, but there quite the divide between African-Americans and, um, uh, Anglo-Saxons who look at me in my white my white girl ways. Um, and jo- uh, what's his face? His Jim Jones. Tom Jones. Thank you. Tom Jones. <laughs> nope. He threw underwear at me. Um, he was someone who actually did a lot of good before he went terribly, 
terribly bad. Isn't that messed up? I didn't know that. I did some research and I was like, he was really active politically on integration and equal rights. And it's like, oh my God, that's how he hooked all these people. A hundred percent. And like he, the drugs really took him down a bad, bad path as they do. But he, you know, like in Indiana where it's very black and white, he he really, really, really tried to change that. And, um, his church while, you know, really bad, it, he would go into the communities and like give them food and give them coal or, you know, like do great, do Christian things. So Jim Jones, he was kind of a humanitarian. He was involved with government officials, I, I found out. I didn't realize oh, yeah. how high up he was. In San Francisco, yes. it was crazy. Him and Harvey Milk, like, it was – he moved to California because he read in, like, Time or something that um, that, that where he specifically wanted to move, the um, nuclear – whatever wouldn't hurt him as bad because it was by the Sierra Nevada, um, Sierra mountains. And then there was another thing that would protect him. So he moved his group from Indiana to San Francisco, which wasn't the place that would protect him, but, um, because of a nuclear fallout. Right. Cause <laughs> he was you know also, that? no, I did not, but he was also yeah. a huge conspiracy theorist and he oh, started oh, adopting insane. communist and socialist ideals which contributed to like the idea that you give all your possessions over, you live in a right. socialist environment, you live communally, you you know, you all are the same. It has, the equal rights thing became, yeah, socialist, communist. I would say more communist than socialist. More, com- yeah, and and then you know, like then even well after we get through Jonestown itself, like what happened there, like. What he had a few men not kill themselves do was take the money to to Russia, not not to Russia, but to a a Russian. uh, And when when you go into a different country and it's called it's not called an empire. Yes. With all of his money and all the stuff to to um, donate it to communism. Yes. What? Wait, so this was the Soviet Union at the time because this all transpired in the 70s. Yeah. 78. Okay. It was 1978. I was okay. 7 years old. Okay. Um when they all died. But um and I do remember. Holy like shit. I, I remember the news. I remember that visually, you know, like Dan Rather on my parents' TV and just walking by and being well, my mom's TV and being like well, what is that? And mom, you know, quickly getting up because you didn't have remote controls and turning it off. Oh my God. Okay. All right. So here's my background on Jonestown. Um, nothing from when it was happening live. So I don't, I didn't see any of the news. I was four years old in 1978 and my parents had just left their communal cult. Can you imagine how they felt? So I talked to my mom about this just this oh, good, week. Good, good. I said, I, she still is refusing to come on the podcast, Michelle. Everybody out there listening, put out a, put out a, some good juju for my mom to actually agree to come on sometime because she oh, has some she fascinating has insights. And, oh, mom, I just want you to come on and talk to us. But anyway, she w- she was Please. willing she's willing to talk to me, and then I tell you all what she said. So um, if you listen to my podcast since the beginning, you guys know that I was born in a cult called the Kobu, the Church of Bible Understanding. 
also known as the Forever Family, in the 70s, and we left in 1977, end of 1977. So I was um, about three, three and a half years old. I was four by the time Jones, I just turned four by the time Jonestown happened. So I asked my mom, okay, we had just gotten out of the Kobu when Jonestown happened. Were you talking about it? Did you know about it? Because P.S., yeah. we didn't have a TV. I didn't, we, we didn't have a TV for years. Which is cracks me up now because all I do is watch TV. Probably why I watch TV all the time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm like obsessed with all reality TV because I didn't have one. Anyway, so she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, everybody was talking about it. And I'm like, but do you think the people who were still in the Kobu, which you had just left, do you think they were talking about it? And she said the people who left with them, they were all discussing it. And here's what they were saying. They were like, isn't that crazy? Who would do that? <laughs> and so she actually did have the wherewithal to laugh at herself while she was telling me this, like laugh, you know, not ha ha Jonestown, right. but she right. was like, can we you believe like- we were sitting around, <sighs> we just left a cult, like a communal cult where we'd handed over all our possessions. We were under the spell of this crazy ass leader. And you know, he, who later was stockpiling weapons of the Kobu leader, Stuart trail was later stockpiling weapons, probably like preparing for some Waco shit. And they were all sitting around like, oh my God, can you believe these people in Jonestown? Like what a tragedy. Like who would, who would do that? And she's like, she's like, I, she's like, I could just point that finger right back at myself. But of course I didn't. And I was like, oh my God, mom. I'm like, well, you can't probably conceive of it when you're in it. It's only afterwards that you understand. Survivor 46 is here. And so is on fire. The only official survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. God, the tragedy. I mean, the tragedy that you were possibly that close to, because I think I would picture them being horrified, you know, but they just didn't, it didn't even register. They were so fresh out of their own nightmare that they were just like, oh God, you know, ours was different. Yes. Yes. All but for the grace of God, go I. Yeah. Really? Because that's not us. Oh my God. So, and I have to tell you, like, I've hardly dove, dived, (laughs) I've hardly (laughs) delved into Jonestown over the years because Okay, it's Jonestown and Waco, I'll admit, that feel the closest to home from my parents' experience. I think because of the socialist leanings, because of the apocalyptic preaching, mm-hmm. and because this they, the way they separated and they were um, like, you work, live, worship, everything all together, and then they both ended tragically. And I just think, oh my God, that could have been, you know, like, I don't, I don't relate to the Nexium cult so much, or even Scientology. Those seem like, you know, the more loosely structured cults. When you're right. all living together and like isolated from the world, that's what scares me the most. Not that we're yeah. ranking cults in, in scariness, but for well, me, for me. I, I would go, I would say you're right. I mean, there's yeah. so much more that you can manipulate if you are under that person's thumb 24 seven, you know, that's, totally. that's, it's not, it's not an arguable, um, thing. Like at, at least with Nexium, from what I understood, um, you know, they were able to talk to these 
girls, not that they were listening. So when you're that isolated, yeah, no, there's, there's nothing you can do. That's why, um, Ryan, is his last name Ryan? Yeah. Uh, the, the representative Ryan, all these people were coming up to him and being like, I can't talk to my family. Right. And that's actually what happened. So go ahead and explain that. What This documentary follows the reporters. It follows the journalists who went with the representative. Was he a congressman or representative? Congressman Leo Ryan. Congressman. Yes, Le- Le- okay. U.S. Congressman Leo Ryan, who people were complaining to and saying there's a, you know, this cult that had since moved to Guyana, a small country bordering Venezuela, I think. Um, in Yes. Yeah. So. Jim Jones moved to the whole cult there. He built the People's Temple. He was saying, there's oppression in America. I need to get out. He was also probably coming under legal scrutiny and humanitarian scrutiny. Right. So he moves everyone there. Well, people start talking who are escaping, essentially. And so this congressman has a friend who ends up getting murdered, who had a wife still in the People's Temple. And he takes it upon himself to gather a team of NBC journalists and go down there on a fact-finding mission. And this is where all hell breaks loose. Now, I never understood this story. I never understood how what is referred to as the mass suicide, which I would call a mass murder, was actually a result of killing a congressman. So explain to us kind of the high-level situation here. Okay, so they all – there. I think there were two planes that went from um, uh, – it doesn't matter where because I'm going to fuck it up um, from this small airstrip or from <laughs> I'm gonna, I want to I want to know what it's called and I can't think of it. And it's killing me. So it's, okay. they, it's it is OK. Move on, Michelle. Um, so they go from San Francisco somehow. But there are two planes at the end and they go to this tiny, tiny uh, airstrip. And there are some family members with Ryan, I believe. And he and this uh, bunch of people go to Jonestown and they and they know that they're coming. And um, Jim Jones is like, we will welcome them. We will show them the best time that we will have a party that they've never seen. And so they have this all 900 people just hanging out. And there's really good music, by the way. They're feeding them food that they haven't been able to eat for I don't know, six months. So it's like they, the fatted calf is being laid out for these people right. to say, we are fine. This is fine. But as they're sitting there, um, someone on this special, the Dateline special said you could see they, they weren't, they weren't clapping at the right time. Right. They the look music. drugged out and they actually show footage. You guys should really yeah. watch this Jonestown yeah, special should. came out in mid July. It's only like 42 minutes long. You can look it yeah. up on any site. You can stream it from any device. I was shocked at the footage they had and it was from these oh journalists. My gosh. It's insane. The footage, but so they, you know, they're like, okay, well it doesn't seem that bad. And then people were starting to kind of sneak over and giving them little notes saying, I need to get out of here. Right. They got one note that said, please get us out of Jonestown. And that's when everything started unraveling. And it was now she's a representative, correct? Um, Who was it? Spear? uh, Yeah, Jackie. Jackie Spear. Jackie Spear. She was there. And she said, that's when I realized everything we've heard is true. And they were hearing rumors that people were being thrown in holes in the ground um, that children are being suspended upside down and tortured. I mean, that it was just horrific. It was like 
the nightmare of all nightmares. And of course, when they get there and everybody's celebrating and happy and also way drugged out, they were just, they didn't know what to do until they got that note. And then they, yeah. they it was like, it was like a gun went off and it was on <sighs> after that note. Don't you agree? Like everything yeah. changed. Yeah. And they were like, all right, we're going to just, uh, <laughs> going to, you know, anyone who wants to leave. And Jim was like, yes, anyone who wants to leave can go. Right. That's right. what happened. Right. And so and he so was they, trying to convince them not to go right. individually. They also had cameras on the whole time, but they had people from Jonestown side by side with them, these reporters and the camera crew, so that they could never right. really get the truth out of anyone with the camera. Right. So you never see anyone on camera actually saying, this is a nightmare. I'm trapped here. Get me out there. Into that heartbreaking interview with the one girl whose brother was holding her hand. He was visiting yeah. and he was trying to get her out. And she's an yeah. adult woman, very young That's woman right. though. And she was like, I'm very happy here. I know everything's yeah. going well. And you could just tell her eyes. It was like, oh. it was like the movie Get Out. Yes. There was no one home. There was she, no one home. But you could see something like in the deep down. What yes. is it? The the way below, yeah. whatever they call it. Oh. You can see something she, she was, te- she was trying to tell you with her eyes. Like, I'm like, this is fucked up. Right. It there was, was so we were just waiting for that tear to fall out of her eye, but like all of them looked yes. like the sunken they, place. Was, <laughs> That's what I was the sunken place. Yes. That's right. Cause they were, they just shoved it down so far because they believe they, 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 um, one of the victims who lived, did you know there were two people who lived? Yes. They ran into the jungle, right? No. Oh, one I thought them, they ran into the jungle and they lived. There were, those are two other people that okay. did. But there were um, there was this lady who died, I think, five years ago. She went under her mattress or under her bed and, quote, unquote, slept. And then another guy was hearing impaired. So he didn't hear the, the alarm oh, to go and kill God. yourself. And Holy he just fell shit. asleep. Yeah. So when he fucking woke up, everyone, everyone was, was dead. dead. Oh yeah. my God. How do you live through that? How do you go on? It's how he died the next year. Oh, like, I don't know. How, they didn't say how he died, but, um, yeah, but the woman, she, um, she was fascinating. Like the, uh, Hyacinth is her first name. I can't remember her last name, but she, she tells the story about, um, like she, she was just like, I, I can't get out of here. Like, I don't, I gave, I sold my house and gave him all the money. That's what happens. When you leave a cult like that, you leave with nothing. I mean, the only reason my parents were able to leave and they were in their low twenties with a baby, you know, but the only reason is because my mom had good parents. That's it. Who didn't, who didn't disown her for doing what she did. Because that's also important. The tough love thing often backfires. And I just say this is my own opinion from my own family's experience, but tough love can backfire. I think Catherine yeah. Oxenberg is a great example of that. She never gave up. She never turned her back on India. You know, no, she's she, great. And yeah, it's because when you when you make the decision yourself, if you can ever make the decision yourself to leave, you need someone to help you transition. Yeah. You can't, you, you usually have nothing. You have no resources, no home, no connections, no phone, no TV, nothing. They take everything, Ugh. you know, Ugh. it's crazy. Yeah. So, okay. So Leo Ryan and this group of journalists 
and some family members, they finally right. get this group of defectors together. They do these interviews, these right. cur- these cursory interviews that nobody really tells the truth in. So they're showing all this footage in the Dateline special, and then they show them all convening back at the airstrip and doing one final interview, like, all right, this is what happened. But we find out Leo Ryan was actually held at knife point, and he comes stumbling into the scene of the airstrip right. with right. blood all over a- his shirt. <laughs> He's covered in blood. He gets out of this truck and people are like, oh, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. Craziness. And and then but then he's like, we're fine. Let's just go. Right. right? He's like, like let's just he's like, like step on the gap. Like, let's go. And so they all get, make their oh. way to the airplanes and it, with still blood all over his shirt. He wasn't oh cut, gosh. but the assailant was cut. He is right. giving an interview right. to one of the journalists who. Oh, God, it's so haunting in this Dateline special, you guys, because the journalist is kind of his eyes are darting and he's looking like uh, what the fuck is happening behind Congressman Ryan right now. And they tell you in the documentary, this guy just saw the People's Temple, like murderers coming out of the jungle. The Red Army. That's what they called them. The Red Army were coming at them. Uh, Yeah. Like Mm. out of the jungle with rifles. Yeah. And they are prepared to mow down everyone they can. Now, what is the reason for this, do you think? Because this is never made clear. Um, I think that because of those defectos, is that the right word? Defectors. Yeah. Yes. We'll call them defectos. It's fine. Much better. Um, That I think that it was a failed experiment and Jim Jones's ego was so big that he didn't want them to go home and tell them because this is what sets off the series of events that eventually leads yeah. to everyone dying. They open fire on the journalists, on the congressman and they end up, mur- help me out. How many people they end up murdered dead? One, two, three, Five. four. Uh, they murdered four people, four people and injured a few others. And in fact, yeah. Um, Jackie Spear, who's highlighted, she's now a representative. Um, she yeah. is shot, shot five, five times. times and she, her leg is like destroyed. And she said she wasn't, she said she really didn't think she was going to live through it. And they had to she wait waited. a full yeah. day, right? Yeah. For 22 help. hours, 22 fucking hours. Because how were they supposed to get out of there? Then after, yeah. you know, they were they were shooting people, and once they wounded them, this is, these are the cult members. Oh, my gosh. They would come yeah. over and shoot them in the head because they would want to finish them off, but they only managed to – only. That sounds terrible. They managed it, to kill four people, and they injured a ton of others, and then they just went away. They went they back. They went right back. Yeah. Interestingly, also, one of the defectors turned on the group. So she, it was like someone was a mole, someone who said, get me out of the temple. She was in a truck with some people and she started attacking them or he, I don't know if it was a she or he, but I was like, I have never heard that story before. I mean, this was all this. They never really cover. I shouldn't say they, I haven't listened to enough or read enough. You guys out there who have probably know all of this. I'll just say it was news to me. I didn't know all the details of why this representative and the journalists were killed. I didn't understand it. You know, so this kind of, yeah, I guess it cleared it up how it happened and then. But not, yeah, there's so many, I want to, there's a, a one that I want to watch. Uh, it's the women behind John, Jonestown that came out too. Cause this has been, it's the f- uh, 40 year anniversary. Right. That's why this Dateline yeah, special is on. Why everything's coming up. But um, yeah, 40 years. Jesus Christ. I can't um, believe that. 
No, but there's so much, there's so many layers to this onion. There's the, the, why he became this person. And of course he was an animal, he hurt animals and, um, was abused. And it's like the, it's the serial killer countdown. I don't know that he wet his hands, wet his bed, but like, so you can just see why you don't know all these details because there are so many layers to this story. It's, it's incredibly insane. It's incredibly insane. It is like going into the mind of a crazy person. And I don't think anyone's ever going to fully put it together. But no. what happens next is, yeah, they have to wait for help. They take the dead and the injured, the journalists, everyone gets out of there, everyone who's left and they take right. their, their dead with them. And back at the people's temple, Jim Jones is telling the entire cult that everyone needs to die. Because the congressman was just killed, three Mm -hmm. other journalists were just killed, and he keeps claiming, and you can hear this on the tape, because they did recover audio tape. Which is terrible. Which is is just horrible to listen to, I know. They run only a little bit of it in the Dateline special, so if you do watch it, you're not going to hear a a huge amount, but they do run the part where he's saying, he's like trying to convince his followers, and I guess to a certain extent he probably convinces some of them, that they need to start taking the, what is it, cyanide, the cyanide based yeah. punch, because the government is going to come after them and they're going to murder their children and they're going to torture them. And he basically says, like, you have to kill your children and yourselves now because what will happen to you is worse. Yeah. Yet he yeah. ordered what happened to cause that scenario. So it's so it, fucked up. It's his just unbelievable. The thing is that uh, he was obsessed with Hitler. And Hitler killed himself so that he didn't have to um, be, you know, go to court for his crimes. So that's a big part of why he did this. Oh, my God. Of course. Of course he's obsessed with Hitler. So ultimately, the Jonestown followers drank this cyanide-laced punch. They uh, resulted in the deaths of 918 people, 304 of which were minors, meaning children. it's unfathomable, and I can't even really spend too much time talking about that. I mean, it's with the initial. <sighs> it, the it's initial too. Count, it's too much to take. Um, the initial count was less because the parents were on top of the kids. Oh my god! So here's the thing: it was it was termed an act of revolution. That's what Jim Jones said. It was a revolutionary suicide, yeah. and we also find out later from details and you guys know this if you've been following Jonestown over the years that the children were given the punch first so that the yeah. parents had to watch them die and Michelle you said you, you or you looked up a quote was that from a survivor um it was no it was so one of the interesting things was that he had started um prepping them to take this uh flavorade right as you will um because and it had, it didn't just have cyanide in it. It also had tranquilizers in it so that um, you couldn't fight it, I guess. But uh, they were trained to start, he would say, all right, today's the day for you to die. And they would have these, you know, those meetings of the, the, the small groups that are the special ones. And you'd sit there and you were told that Jim Jones thinks it's time for you to die and you would drink it and it would be bitter because it's flavored without sugar. And you'd be like, fuck, I guess, I guess I got to die. And then it was, you know, like surprise 
it's just flavorade without sugar. Right. So he'd so been they were grooming them for this. Them. Yes. Yeah. They, he was. They were grooming them for this, and he. What what I read that you had sent some notes over. Someone said, Sorry. "Was it no?" Where, yes, the, where so she said, "After you watched your child die, you'd think what's there to live for may as well die." Yeah. So it it was um, a former uh, Jones follower. She okay. said that. That's to what the I New figured. York yeah, yeah, that it was a survivor or a former follower. Okay, not yeah. a survivor of the massacre, but a follower no, who no, got no, out no. before that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think and sh- and there was a f- a few former followers or. Yeah. On the Dateline special who, you know, spoke about it too. So it, it's a really good, it, it, at first I was like, come on, but holy shit, the more you get into it, it really was, it's haunting. Seeing, um, Ryan, uh, uh, Le- Ryan, Leo Ryan's family was just really, really hard. And the fact that Jackie Spiro was his assistant and then she went and had his seat at the, um, in Congress, um, not in Congress, um, is whatever. Just yeah. Beautiful. It like, is. And just... she talks about filling his seat and like how much yeah. that's affected her. It's like, she's carrying on his legacy. It's, uh, it's tough to fathom how those how those people came back from that and yet went on in any capacity. I mean, now yes. they didn't see the mass suicide again, I would call it murder that happened after that. There was one guy who took a right. team down there. He paid right. off the airport. He paid off everyone. So nobody would get the story, but him, he did not know he was flying in to see he had no 900 idea. dead bodies. It was, he, they, he describes the helicopter. This is an American. Was he an American journalist? Correct. Yeah, I think yeah. he was. I think he also was NBC. Okay, he was also NBC. That makes sense because he got the video from them. So he said, "Okay, right. I'll take a team down and I'll see what's going on now." Since they just attacked you, which is crazy to me, but he did. Took a team down there, and they have a helicopter circling the compound. And he said he they didn't know what it was until the stench came up. Right. He thought it was a quilt. Right. <gasps> I mean. Can you imagine what his team, and then his team landed on the ground and walked through that? No. I can't even fathom. And they show, no. they show him reporting on the scene from when he first discovered it with these few people who he brought with him. And right. it's mind boggling. I mean, they just have like scarves tied over their faces and you yeah. can't even, it's like seeing the pictures that you see from the Holocaust. I mean, it's. It's the same. It's the same kind of scene in terms of the yeah. the large the mass horror. bodies, the horror where yeah. y- your brain almost short circuits. Yeah, you know, and you're like, "What? I I can't even quite take this in." So, and he says he still smells that smell today. That was interesting to me that he said that in the documentary. That's what yeah. sticks with him, forty yeah. years later. Smell is really a power, like. It is. It can take you anywhere. Um, it's emotionally connected. Yeah. It ugh. connects your emotional state. Yeah. It's just, the fact that he did that, and it's not just about getting the story, but again, the, I don't know. All these people are just so traumatized. It's just. They all are. It's Every so traumatizing. Yeah. yeah. So then after the, the special kind of ends, you know, I think they really did the special. I feel like Dateline did it, of course, because it's NBC and it's the 40 year anniversary. It felt like an homage to the people who died to the people who, you know, were injured in this and the people who lived through it. It was truly more focused on the journalists than the Jonestown yes. followers. But I thought because it, because this angle hasn't been shown nearly as much as the cult itself, it was an interesting documentary in that way. Yeah. Yeah. In the beginning I was like, eh, 
But then at the end, I was like, holy shit. Yeah, we need to honor these people. Like, right. they they risked their lives. They they were mowed down. And then they, ah, they lived through something that is just... It, it's one of... Before 9-11, it's the most Americans who had died yep. by unnatural causes. Yep. And it was to know that In you one were place. The, yeah. And to know that you were the catalyst, you know, that the attack on you was then the catalyst, the right. planned catalyst to... All of that death. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just beyond comprehension. But I would it recommend really watching is. it. Would you? I mean, I thought it was. I thought it yes. was worth watching. It's not too grisly either. I mean, I know we're talking about no. the details of what yeah. happened there, but that's just from knowing about Jonestown and what happened. They do not show anything super grisly. The worst, no. the worst shots are the ones you've probably already seen, which are the horrific pictures of all of the bodies. Usually from pretty far away, there's one on the ground when the one journalist gets there. But the the really disturbing footage for me was seeing, the, I'd never seen the guys with the rifles before at the airstrip. And they got shots of them. I didn't, and it was because yeah. the camera ended up falling to the ground and was still running. Right. And then the guy, um, one of the cameramen grabbed it and was like holding on to it like it was a baby. Right. Exactly. Uh, because he just, he said, I can never let go of this camera when they were flying right. back. Cause his yeah. friend said to him, you can let go of the camera. Now we're safe. We're headed back to the U S and he said, I can never let go of this camera. I was like, yeah, tearing up when I was, yeah. Oh my God. It was, a, it was really moving and it was, it was honoring the NBC crew and yeah, you know, and journalism the in general, like, um, oh my God! It's coming. You know, it's starting to really get under fire, and I think this is an important reminder of what um, good journalism can do. Yeah, thank you, Michelle. This was a good conversation. I'm glad that we watched this. I think we need to watch just a fucked up, crazy one like Wild Wild Country again, or yes. um, let's say like uh, what was the other one with the brawless hoarder and her lover. Yes, evil oh my genius. Goodness. Bring you know, that so, shit back. We, we need we need to go back into that territory because this is so <laughs> utterly depressing. We need yeah. something with some just little fun craziness to it next time. <laughs> exactly. We like need, I mean, maybe somebody died, but maybe they deserved it. I don't know. Right. Like we don't know <laughs> whose body is in the freezer, but we do know that this woman has collected way too many stamps, and yeah. she loves horses. Oh my God. We really, we really do need to find that. So if you guys have any recommendations for us, we're going to cover another cult, another true crime, hopefully next month. Uh, the staircase was a great, I keep following that story. The one we covered just recently too, but you know, there's so many out there. So help help us pick Michelle, where can people follow you and where can people find your podcast? Tell us all about it. Okay. Um, I haven't set up any podcast things, even though you told me to. Um, but if you go to at, at Mo Likowski at the Instagrams or the, excuse me, the Twitters, um, that's where I'm at. Um, and I just put a new podcast out today episode rather. So, um, it's real fun. It's real fun. It it deals with divorce and I think you'll love it and just laugh. You won't. Um, and that's on the iTunes and the Stetchers and the whatever you name it. It's there. Um, and that's where I am. Yep. And what's it called? Oh, and, and the Jenny McCarthy show, luckily. And that too. Um, and thank you. That's a good point too. It's called never tell your stories. So <laughs> yeah. If you're not subscribed, subscribe, you will love it. These episodes are amazing. And your production is amazing. I just have to tell well, you that. 
So let me, congrats. that's a shout out to Joey. Yay. Joey Cho Cho. Thank you, Joe. All yeah. right. Well, Michelle, we'll talk again soon. We'll figure out what to watch next. And, um, thank you for suffering through Those this triplet story. We got to do that. Okay. Uh, okay. All right. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thanks to Michelle for coming on the podcast today to talk about Jonestown. Ugh, heavy stuff. But it is the 40-year anniversary, and I think it was a worthwhile episode to watch a Dateline. So check it out if you haven't yet. Also, thank goodness we have things like 90 Day Fiance, Before the 90 Days, and Real Housewives to lighten the mood for us when we need it. I'm definitely going to be covering Real Housewives of New York and my recaps this week on RealityT.com. You can check out my recap for 90 Day on RealityT as well. I'll be on the Jenny McCarthy show on Friday of this week. So check that out in the morning, probably around 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We will be talking Housewives and 90 Day if we can fit it in. And next week, tune in because I have Bobby Brown on the podcast. Now, there are three Bobby Browns out there. The Bobby Brown I have on is the... 80s kid, you all remember her, the model, the former wife of Janie Lane from Warrant, the former fiance of Tommy Lee, and just an all-around badass chick. She's written a book, um, I just read it, Dirty Rocker Boys. If you've read it, you know how fantastic it is. If you haven't, check it out immediately. And she was also on Ex-Wives of Rock, a reality show that aired for three years, just a few years back. So she's going to talk about all of the crazy stories that she has. She's going to talk about what she's doing now, and I think you're really going to love her. I am in love with her after talking to her. I want you guys to join the Facebook group if you haven't yet. It's so much fun over there. Come on. On in. Everyone is welcome. Send me a request. And as long as you don't look like a robot, you're in. All your reality TV besties are waiting there for you. Pink Shade with Aaron Martin on Facebook. You can head over to my Patreon page, patreon.com slash pink shade. And for $5 or more a month, you can get bonus content. I'm getting really personal on the Patreon lately. And I appreciate all of you who are supporting me there and telling my stories. I'm also doing throwback recaps of old vintage Housewives episodes. I'm giving you some extra interviews and some behind the scenes dirt that I can't share on the regular pod. I have some new dirt I'm going to be talking about in terms of a recent Southern Charm scandal that is hitting the news just this week. It is devastating. And um, yeah, we're going to get into it over on patreon.com slash pink shade. Thank you to Carrie Cook and Tammy Stefani, our premium sponsors. And thanks to our newest extra shady sponsor, Barb. Welcome. Follow me at Erin Leah Martin on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you to everyone who's listening today. If you head over to iTunes and give me a five-star rating and review, I will so appreciate it. Thanks to everyone who's taken a few minutes to do that so far. It helps really, truly more than you know, and your time is valuable. I know that you tuning in every week is why this podcast is still running, and I appreciate you immensely. I really, really do. All right, guys, until next time, I will see you in reality. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. 
the winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.